0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to this very special Championship Week edition of Hummus Tailgate Party. I'm your host, Thomas Jackson. Today, we are going to be diving back into all the action from one of the best rivalry weekend Saturdays in a long time. Uh, We're going to be talking about Coaching Carousel Madness. I'm recording this part at 7 o'clock my time, Monday night and Brian Kelly just got hired about 30 minutes ago by the LSU Tigers so it's been a really crazy past day and a half with everything going on in the coaching world and then finally we're going to get to an interview with Garrett Bulldog. Uh, If you've been listening to the show all season you remember Garrett came on before we did our week one preview and talked a lot about the Georgia Clemson game way back when. Uh, It feels like a year ago now. But Garrett's going to come back on to talk about the dogs' matchup with Bama in the SEC Championship game, just as we promised that we would. Week one, we said if Bama and Georgia were going to meet up in Atlanta at the end of the season, then we'd have him back on. So he'll be coming up here shortly. Uh, Thanks to Garrett for coming on again. Um, So, yeah, after this, we are going to, let's see, next week after the college football playoff, final playoff rankings finally come out on Sunday after all the championship games this Saturday. So I'm going to do a episode after that comes out maybe Sunday afternoon depending on how much I have going on. If not then definitely on Monday night. I'll get it out to everybody just kind of talking about Four teams that make it into this year's playoff. Maybe touch on a couple of other bowl games uh, that I'm excited for, but we'll mostly just be focusing on the playoff in next week's episode. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more coaching carousel stuff, so we'll maybe do a separate episode for that. Uh, I could do a whole pod on each of these hires that just came out in the past 36 hours, but time limitations and everything. I would have to squeeze it all into this one, so we might go a little bit long today, but that's all right. Um, after next week's playoff and carousel episode, then uh, we've got like a week and a half or so where all that's really going on is like Army, Navy, and then the Heisman. The first bowl games don't start until December 17th, and then obviously they really get ramped up there uh after christmas before new year's and that that fun little week of time there so i am going to do one maybe two bowl game preview episodes i might break it up depending on how deep i want to get into some of the smaller um not as big bowl games um and then we'll kind of zone in on the playoffs more once again towards the end of the month and uh talk more about the semifinals and then do some reaction episodes and obviously preview the big daddy at the end of the season. So that's my kind of rough tentative plan. Uh, Thanks everybody for listening along. Can't believe the regular season's already over and we will get going with some coaching carousel reaction right now. Okay. Programming update. I changed my mind. I'm breaking this week's into two episodes because there's just way too much going on. So Garrett Bulldog and the championship week preview and the playoff picture will be coming out in Tuesday or Wednesday night. So right now, this rest of this episode is just uh, coaching carousel and rivalry, rivalry week recap. So Garrett will be on uh, the next episode coming out in a day or two. Thanks. Thomas Jackson, beautiful podcast from Denver. So this all started coming down uh, yesterday, which is Sunday for me, um, when Billy Napier was announced as Florida's new head coach from Louisiana. Of course, he's a disciple of both Saban and Dabo, and he's really made his rounds as an assistant, did a great job at Louisiana as a head coach the past few years. He's uh, definitely a, you know, kind of more traditional coach, less eccentric uh, than Mullen, which will probably be pretty refreshing for the Florida fans. Um, You know, this is the only hire uh, that's happened so far, which as I'm recording this, it's him, Lincoln Riley and Brian Kelly are the big ones that have come out so far. But now, of course, uh, Notre Dame and Oklahoma loom. But... uh, Billy Napier is the only one of those three that wasn't surprising to me. I had heard that Florida was going to be looking at him closely and all off season, he's been one of these, you know, pretty high profile, attractive group of five coaches that it would have been more surprising if he didn't get hired by a Power Five school with all the vacancies there are now. So I'm happy for him. Um, he seems you know, like a really well-rounded coach, good at recruiting, which wasn't Mullen's forte. So he's going to have some work to do to kind of make up for that. But luckily for him, Gainesville's right in the middle of one of, if not the most fertile recruiting grounds in the country. Um, so I'm sure he'll be able to pick it up with his staff and uh, figure everything out. The dust didn't even have time to settle after the Billy Napier news at Florida when word started getting out on Twitter about Lincoln Riley going to USC. Everyone had been suspecting that LSU was going to go really hard after Riley, and they probably were. Um, But so, you know, he he was getting kind of hounded the last couple weeks of the season about, you know, are you going to LSU, blah, blah, blah. He kind of, you know, sort of snapped at a reporter after the Bedlam game on Saturday night saying, like, no, I'm not going to be the coach at LSU. And then literally, like, within 10 hours, he was on a jet to Southern California. So, he wasn't lying, as everyone's very clearly pointed out. But um, he, uh, he had something else in the works that nobody really saw coming. It was surprising just because of all the LSU chatter. And you assumed if he didn't go to LSU, he was probably going to stay at Oklahoma. They're paying him, you know, hefty, hefty amount. Or maybe even go to the NFL, because the NFL is, you know, every single coaching vacancy nowadays seems to get filled by one of these kind of trendy, young, offensive-minded head coaches, much like himself. So he probably would have had some offers if he had uh, waited it out for the NFL season to end. But he's going to L.A., Um you know, it it was surprising because we didn't think he would be going there if anywhere. But when you think about it, maybe he didn't like the fact that Oklahoma was going to go to the SEC because Oklahoma's been pretty much running the Big Twelve Big Twelve ever since Texas and Mac Brown kind of you know hit the end of their run there in the late two thousands. It's really been Oklahoma's league every single year with, you know, maybe one or two random exceptions, I guess like this one. But <clears throat> with LS or Oklahoma moving to the SEC, obviously the competition's going to get a lot more stiff. And, you know, even with some of Oklahoma's great teams recently, they still might only finish, like, third or fourth in the SEC uh, with how much harder the schedule is going to be than it is just playing, you know... Uh, Texas Tech and Kansas State your whole season. Um, but it was still just just a shocking move um, that he went, because Oklahoma is such a high highly regarded job. I mean, certainly one of the best in the entire country. Uh, one of the most respected and traditional and powerful football programs in the whole country, and it's really always been like that as far as I know. Um, so usually you don't see these coaches moving from you know, feels like kind of a lateral move. Uh, Normally when a coach gets to a place like Oklahoma or USC, you know, they might every so so often you'll see someone, you know, like Saban did at LSU, he'll decide, okay, I want to go and give it a shot in the NFL. But very rarely do you see a coach jump straight from a – Top-tier program to another top-tier program. And now that's happened for the second time in barely over 24 hours with Brian Kelly going from Notre Dame to LSU. But back to Lincoln Riley really quick. Um, I Let's see, took some notes. Oklahoma, this is the first time that a coach has left Oklahoma for another coaching job since 1972. And that's when their coach went to the Patriots. So, you know, to... Great jobs, obviously, but going to the NFL is kind of a, you know, a new challenge, kind of turning over a new leaf. And before that, the last time that an Oklahoma coach uh, left to go to another school in college was back in the 1940s. So this just really doesn't happen at a program like Oklahoma. Uh, so I think that was just shocking that he left, but especially the fact that it was another college job. Um Last year, you know, I guess one one move before this Kelly thing came out that felt not not even that similar, but when Jimbo left from FSU to Notre Dame uh, or FSU to Texas A and M, sorry, I uh, I would argue that like Oklahoma USC is a top tier, you know, probably top five college job in the country, Um, and FSU and A and M are alike in that they're very good jobs with you know great support, great fan bases, great pay and everything, great recruiting states. But they are you know an, a, a level or two below uh, Oklahoma or USC type of job just as far as pedigree goes. So, you know, Jimbo going from one to the other. He had also kind of run his course at FSU. There were a bunch of scandals. I won't get into all that kind of stuff. Um, and it seemed like, you know, his days were kind of clearly coming to an end one way or the other there at Florida State. This was just the beginning for Lincoln Riley. He'd just been there for five years after Bob Soups departed, of course. And uh, it's just, it's just hard. <laughs> it's, it's, it's shocking. There's no other, uh, no other way to put it. So why did he do it? Uh, maybe because everyone's speculating, maybe he just didn't love Oklahoma's move to the SEC. Maybe he enjoyed being the top dog year in, year out in the Big 12, and he knew things were about to change very quickly whenever it is that Oklahoma and Texas make the move over. And USC, you know, I mean, Oregon is as long as Cristobal, and even if Cristobal were to leave to go somewhere else, uh, you know, Oregon's had this thing rolling for quite a while now. So you trust that they're going to stay a contender for years to come. Uh, and then, you know, in the South, Utah has been really good, Arizona State, UCL You know, there's a lot of teams that are just kind of, you know, hit or miss every year. But, um, yeah, I mean, right now it's it's Oregon is clearly the one that's coming in, poaching a ton of recruits. From Southern California, that'll probably be Lincoln Riley's biggest competition on a consistent basis. There, Utah's tough too. But speaking of recruits, and then we'll wrap it up on Lincoln. Uh, <laughs> everyone's been looking at Oklahoma's, uh, you know, two four seven page and all of their recruits for this upcoming class, and there's like five, four or five stars that are all from Southern California. So now everyone's speculating that he's going to get some of these guys to flip, go to USC, take them away from Oklahoma. And, you know, if, I mean, I doubt any of these kids were, you know, I'm sure they all have respect for the Oklahoma program, but they, you know, probably grew up dreaming of playing for USC. And it's probably, you know, Lincoln Riley is probably the main reason that they were going from Southern California to play in Oklahoma in the first place. So it'll be interesting to see how many of those kids he can get to come with them because, uh, he could definitely make a big splash and uh Oklahoma fans, you know, rightly so are not happy with them right now cuz this just happened so quickly out of the blue. But um yeah, they would not be uh <laughs> any happier if he took some of their recruits away from them. So, keep an eye on that. Uh finally for the coaching carousel segment, hot off the press, Brian Kelly going from LSU or Notre Dame to LSU, pardon me. Uh this was maybe even more shocking than the Lincoln Riley just cuz I I don't know. I mean, I guess you know, the more that I've had now that I've had a day to process the Lincoln Riley thing, I could see it. Maybe he, you know, they gave him a fat contract. I think he's making 110, 120 million over t- tw- 10 years or something like that. Uh they bought him a 6 million dollar house, gave him a private jet for his family, 24-7 access, so, you know, maybe he just wanted to live in California, you know, some people find that very appealing, and uh, it's quite possible that he wanted just uh, a change of scenery, and, you know, it, it is a lateral move, I would say, so it's not like he's taking a step back or anything, but Brian Kelly going from South Bend to Baton Rouge was more surprising and maybe stuff will come out over the following days that makes, you know, makes it make a little more sense. But what I've kind of been thinking about the past half hour or so is, you know, he's done a great job as much as I love to joke on Notre Dame and everything. He's on a great job, very consistent up there. And we make fun of them because they get to a, you know, good point in December, January, and then they generally get their doors blown off by, uh you know superior opponent in the playoff or BCS game but you know most you know 99% of the teams in the country aren't making it that far especially on as consistent of a basis Brian Kelly brought Notre Dame to the 2012 title game where they lost to bama and then two college football playoff appearances where they lost to clemson and alabama again so they weren't really they weren't close in any of those games so it it feels like he kind of reached the ceiling of what he could get Notre Dame to be. I'm not saying Notre Dame can never win a national championship again, obviously, uh, but you know, as far as his tenure there, it's been over a decade now, and he, you know, he got you know to the doorstep three times, and then got the door just slammed aggressively in their faces. So. Maybe he just wants to win a title, you know. The last three coaches that coached head coach at LSU all won titles, being Saban, Miles, and Orgeron. So I would argue that Brian Kelly's a better coach than Orgeron, less miles. So you know, I mean, if he can, if he can uh, do what he was doing at Notre Dame and get some better athletes, and you know, maybe kind of modernize his system a little bit, then I he's he's got a good chance at being very successful down in Louisiana. So I mean that's that's really all I've been able to think about so far. Um, you know, maybe he just needed a change of scenery as well. Um he's he's been at Notre Dame, let's see, since since oh nine. Um and that's after he got hired from Cincinnati and he did really well there too. So Certainly strange, just from kind of a he's 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 always, always just been up there in Ohio and Indi- Indiana for at least you know my whole football life. So it seems just like a kind of odd fit, just culturally and personality wise. But you know we'll see, time will tell. If you if you win a bunch of ball games, then the anyone can put most of your uh, cultural differences aside. So. That'll do it for the coaching carousel recap for now. I guess to just wrap it up, you know, 36 hours ago, the Florida, USC, and LSU jobs were all open, and that's in addition to a lot of other ones around the country, you know, Washington, Virginia Tech, some really good programs. But those three jobs had opened, and they're all extremely high-profile, obviously. They have all been filled within the span of, you know, 24 to 36 hours of one another, and now it started this domino effect where, you know, we thought it would just be the three of those filling roles, maybe from a group of five school, maybe from coordinators, whatever, uh, maybe even poaching an NFL coordinator, but instead two of those three schools grabbed head coaches from other extremely high-profile college schools. So, you know, now, now Notre Dame and Oklahoma have to make their move in addition to all the other ones. Um, so maybe they grab head coaches from other schools as well and just keep this domino effect going. It's going to be dramatic and entertaining, so I hope everybody has fun following along with it. It's going to be a great week on Twitter. Uh, but, you know, I was saying, I tweeted out right before I hopped on the to record tonight, maybe... uh Maybe Oklahoma and Notre Dame fill their roles and all the dust settles kind of, you know, in the next week or so. And everyone starts to kind of calm down and starts thinking and talking about the playoff like we will. And then, boom, December 8th, Harson gets canned because he doesn't get vaccinated. Purely speculation as of now, obviously, but we still don't have a clear answer from him. So, draw your own conclusions and um, maybe then Auburn steals someone else's head coach and starts this domino effect all over again. So it could be a long, crazy December, but we'll just have to see. So Notre Dame, Oklahoma, your move next. All right, now for our rivalry week recap. Obviously got to start with the Iron Bowl. wasn't the biggest story nationally of the day with Michigan. Finally upsetting Ohio State. We'll get to that one later. But I can't sit on here and not talk about this one first because of the ride that it sent most all of us through. Alabama tops Auburn 24-22 to in four overtimes. As you've heard by now, I'm sure, this was the first Iron Bowl that went to overtime at all, much less four of them. So that just, you know, brought things to a whole new level. This was... Probably the greatest Iron Bowl moment of my lifetime as far as just memorable plays and high stakes go. Um, I was talking to my dad, who's been watching Bama his whole life. And kind of the OG, you know, Alabama Iron Bowl moment is Van Tiffen's 52-yard field goal to beat Auburn in Legion Field back at the actual Iron Bowl uh in nineteen eighty five, my whole life just, you know, I've probably seen that kick ten thousand times on the Jumbotron and YouTube and everything before the before the Bama games got going. But now, I mean, definitely in my lifetime, you know, the only the only one that can kinda of single moment that stands out as far as Bama won Iron Bowls, uh, you know, that, that was close to this was the 2009 Roy Upchurch catch. But I would argue that, you know, even though that season it was a really similar situation with like a six-win Auburn team and a really good Alabama team with uh, championship aspirations. That game we had actually scored before the final minute, though. And, of course, that was the epic drive dubbed as the drive. Uh, When we went all the way down the field, took like seven or eight minutes off the clock and just converted. It feels like a dozen uh, first down conversions on like third and long to Julio. But this one, um, you know, Bama is eliminated from the playoff with a loss. And now we are keeping our hopes alive. Uh, everyone has a different level of hope with the upcoming matchup about the dogs, but we'll speculate on that one more later. Um, just, and especially with all that's fucking happened in that stadium over the past decade or so, it just it means a lot to finally win one of these crazy games where a bunch of bullshit, you know, inexplainable stuff is happening. You know, the the Jameson Williams targeting in the first half, which, you know, was clearly targeting. It was the right call. But it's like our best receiver, (laughs) our best receiver gets, you know, targeting on a punt coverage play in the second quarter. And at that point, we had already not looked good at all on offense. So when that happened, I was just like, all right, here we go. It's 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 going to be one of those days, isn't it? We finally have a kicker now in Will Reichard. God bless that man. And Paul Tyson, who was the holder, uh, fumbled the snap to put the kick the, the ball down for the kick. And we had to bail on the play. And what, you know, everyone expected it to be an easy three points for Reichard. Uh, we didn't even get the kickoff. And then, you know, Bryce fumbles the snap and on fourth down, and it was just, just thing after after thing, just stupid mistakes that seemed to only happen in that godforsaken stadium. Um, you know, I, when we had the ball in the fourth quarter and it was the second to last drive, I thought that was our, you know, last chance and it should have been uh, without the tank Bixby running out of bounds, of course, on that second down play. Um, but I was texting a couple of my friends before I was like, all right, like trying to summon all of my 2009 energy. We got the ball at the two yard line at that point. There were what about four and a half, five minutes on the clock. So plenty of time, um, you know, especially for, for this offense, even though they were horrible all day, especially the offensive line, uh, you know, that's still plenty of time. If you can actually get anything going, the clock isn't gonna be your biggest enemy. Uh we went down to the forty six yard line and got stuffed and uh, you know, we were just losing the field position game, battle all game. And, you know, it's like every time we did get something going, just the you know, in addition to all of our you know, self-inflicted miscues. There were also a bunch of penalties, like the the blocking downfield with a helmet and just face masks. It's like every time, and I'm not like, you know, blaming the refs, but it's every time we did seem to get something going there in the second half, it would just get called back because of a face mask or, you know, something that, you know, was still self-inflicted. But just couldn't get any momentum at all. Finally... Uh you know, after B-Rob goes down, then Trey Sanders has to step in. Now it's looking like he's our only scholarship running back that's going to be healthy for the Georgia game, which I'm sure that'll just go great. Uh, but he got stuffed with about two minutes left at like the 46-yard line on fourth and one. And after that, you know, they they reviewed the play. It was, it looked pretty clear to me that he didn't get it, um, just in real time. But after that Auburn gets the ball two minutes left and you know, it, it feels like it's, it's over. I had accepted defeat. I was starting to send out my congratulatory texts to all my barn friends. And, uh, then sure enough, the play that will go down in infamy for Auburn. Uh, some people are dubbing it as the disaster in the pasture. Tank Bigsby runs out of bounds. He had a lot of green grass. To be, I guess to be fair, he didn't run out of bounds totally on his own. Jordan Battle did a great job at forcing him out, kind of just threw him out of bounds once he got over close to the sideline, but Bigsby should have not gotten anywhere near that because that play alone ended up saving Alabama 40 seconds. We only had two timeouts left and they had the ball and we had to stop them in three downs or else they would have been able to take a knee and um and run the clock out and so with our two timeouts and then one play going out of bounds we were left with about let's see i think i wrote it down here yeah, we had about a minute 35 left, which would have, you know, that's 40 more seconds. It would have been under a minute when we got the ball there at the two yard line. And we ended up scoring with less than 40 seconds to go on the clock. And we converted, let's see, it took 71 seconds to go, uh, 12 plays, 98 yards for that game winning touchdown. Uh, we got the ball back with 95 seconds left and it took 71 seconds. So do the math. There were 24 seconds left after the touchdown, which means if it weren't for Bigsby going out of bounds, that game probably ends when Alabama's got the ball somewhere around the midfield line. If not, you know, Auburn just getting a first down and, and wrapping it up themselves on offense Um, we converted two third and tens and a fourth and seven. One of those third and tens was when Ja'Cory Brooks, the freshman who was playing for Jamison Williams, uh, caught the 28 yard touchdown pass from Bryce Young. Uh, you know, this guy, uh, he hasn't played much all year and he has cemented himself in Alabama folklore for the rest of time. Uh, he wrote his name in Crimson Flame and it was just the most outside of the Georgia national championship game when Tua came in and won it for us in overtime. I think it was the most shocking turn of events that I've ever seen in an Alabama game like I said i was I was watching this at the uh, Alabama bar, the college inn here in Denver and you know, it was uh, pr- obviously a pretty grim scene there, especially in the second half and on into the fourth quarter. And um, when we when we turned the ball over with two minutes left, I was just I was dejected, and you know I was just so I couldn't believe it. Um, and then you know what what seventy one seconds later, when Ja'Cory Brooks hauls in the the touchdown pass, I mean I've I've never seen that place go so crazy in all the games that I've been there to watch, and uh, still don't totally have my voice or my heart rate back from that play yet, but it was quite phenomenal. After that happened, you know, quickly it's like, all right, we have to make the PAT. I wasn't worried about Reichard, but now we had another holder in the game who wasn't our normal guy, Paul Tyson, who fumbled the bag on that first one, so... He came in and knocked down the PAT to tie the ball game at 10. Auburn took a knee, and it was like, all right, everyone was still freaking out at the bar. It's like, all right, calm down. Like, We still have to win this thing. It felt like we won it after that touchdown pass because it was so exciting, and I just was so surprised. Um, But, you know, it's kind of like, all right, get your emotions back in check. You know, I can't imagine being a player, even just being a fan of that game, just how – That type of emotional roller coaster is just so unbelievable. Uh, After that, you know, the really shocking, I mean, second most shocking outside of the fact that Bama actually came back and scored that touchdown. But the fact that Auburn got the ball second, I didn't think they were going to score because TJ Finley had been hopping around on one leg the entire second half. Um, but he came out and played very well in overtime. Alabama got seven to start off with the uh, start the first overtime. Then Auburn came back, scored a touchdown uh, t- to tie it up or win the game if they wanted to be ballsy and have the two point conversion. I have no idea why Harson chose to kick the PAT and extend the game because just very basic elementary. College football philosophy. If you're the lesser team in a game and you have the chance to win it on a two point conversion in overtime, then you probably should. And, you know, I understand like momentum can play a big part of these decisions Um, so, you know, so in which case if the roles were flipped and I mean, you know, and Alabama had the ball second since they had all the momentum, maybe they would choose to go for it since Auburn's defense had been out there. They were, you know, obviously tired at that point in the night, but Harson decided to extend the game for reasons that I will truly never understand having the far inferior team and having just sacrificed all the m- momentum that you had spent four hours building you know now the momentum and the energy was on the Alabama sideline for the first time all game and Harson chose to not go for it um then in the second overtime, both kickers made pretty pretty gutsy kicks um then that led us to the third overtime where Auburn had a really good two-point play that converted it and you know I'm thinking my stars they didn't they didn't do that in the uh, first overtime because they could have won the f- won the game. And they chose not to. Harston was too conservative. Shocking. Uh, and then Bama ended up stopping them. Kool-Aid, my guy, got the deflection in the fourth overtime. And then Mechie hauled it in and won the game. Uh, you know, it was just absolute jubilance after that. I couldn't believe it. I thought I was going to be pissed off and angry all night long. Um, but it was, it was a fun, it was a fun night out on the, uh, front range after, after Mechie hauled that thing in. I still can't believe it. I think I've watched the Ja'Cory Brooks touchdown pass from every angle that I've been able to find on the internet, you know, probably a few dozen times, uh, you know, a couple days later. Um, man, it was just, it was one for the memories and it's just, it's still hard to believe that after all that was going wrong and after all we've seen happen in that stadium, that Bama was able to pull it out. But all the credit in the world. I mean, it wasn't a good game, you know, from an execution standpoint, especially the offensive line for Alabama was just getting killed. But the defense was really firing off, and, I mean, they were just playing hard, fast, and physical. And, I mean, they were dealt some pretty tough hands with the field position, you know, woes that really went on for all four quarters. I mean, it felt like Alabama started with the ball inside the three-yard line like a half dozen different times. And, you know, because of that, we were punting from our own end zone and giving Auburn the ball at midfield. So the defense played extremely well. Um, you know, I thought the, the skill players and Bryce and the running backs played well. It's just, especially in the first half, Bryce didn't have time to think and it made for uh, a long day, but penalty wise, uh, had to mention this. I'm not trying to, you know, be the guy who bitches about the refs or anything all as well. But Bo Nix was bitching about the refs last week, saying that Alabama, you know, they get all these calls and big games, blah, blah. So, for the record, Alabama had 11 penalties for 129 yards, and Auburn had 7 penalties for 52 yards. So, I haven't seen if Bo Nix commented on that one, but if anybody uh, has a clip from that, shoot me a text or a tweet. Let me know. Doubt it. Auburn fans, I'm going to try to keep this quick, and the majority of you guys, you know, We get along. We're buddies. I'm not trying to be a dick to anybody. However, uh, like every fan base, there is a loud minority. And, you know, they started chirp. Some people started chirping at me, Uh, especially during the game. uh, People apparently haven't found out that all you need is one second to uh come back in it, you know, you'd think Auburn fans would know that if anybody. But I was getting calls and texts during the game, not from my close Auburn friends, of course, cuz we have a uh, mutual respect there, but you know, from some more fringe Auburn people that I am just sort of kind of friends with and don't talk to all that often. Of course, they're the jokers that I start to hear from during the game, getting calls in the second half. So, I doubt they're listening, uh but if you are, you know who you are. So, Hope you're doing all right tonight. Uh Last time, you know, they they were chirping at me after the game when I sent out a tweet of the douchebag Auburn punter doing the the crane. And I just said, you know, good evening, good game to all the Auburn fans that were chirping at me during regulation. You know, haven't heard from them since the game ended, shockingly. And then I got, you know, people... Replying to me saying like oh like congrats on beating a six win team, blah 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 like it was our backup quarterback, you know trying to do do that whole thing and hey i'm I get it we played like shit, still won and you know y'all Auburn led for 59 minutes out of the game they never trailed for a single second in regulation and still lost so you know uh in case anyone forgot. Alabama had a backup quarterback in 2019. Mac Jones was only making his third start of his career. This was not 2020 Mac Jones. This was 2019 Mac Jones, who grew a lot in between that Auburn start and his 2020 heroic campaign. Uh, But, you know, Auburn rushed the field after they beat our backup quarterback, and I get it, it's not apples to apples, but, you know, anyone chirping at me, saying like, oh, it was a six-win team with the backup quarterback, I know your ass was on the field after the 2019 game, you know, doinked the field goal, whatever, with Mac Jones starting instead of Tua. Tua would have put up 75 in that game, but he didn't, because he wasn't playing, and it's all good. It is what it is. So... To keep going on this, I don't know if some of y'all have been living under a fucking rock, but winning by a small margin against an inferior team never stopped any Auburn fans in the 2000s talking shit to me for the next 365 days. I know this was a long time ago. I know there wasn't social media. You know, totally different regimes controlling both of these football programs. However, Auburn had one of their best stretches, if not the best stretch in their football program's history in the you know mid2000s when they they popped off the six wins in a row during probably the darkest point in Alabama football history. And it's not like they ever kicked the shit out of Alabama. I went back because I was curious about this. He's, you know all these Auburn fans, not all of y'all sorry to the ones who are polite and respectful. Uh, but you know those of you know who you are. Maybe you should, you know, open Wikipedia once every now and then, because over that six-year span where Auburn beat us six years in a row, they only the average margin of victory was 7.8 points per game, a.k.a. one score. Those were some horrible Alabama teams under some very mediocre coaching staffs, so, you know, if, if you're trying to get on to Alabama fans about celebrating this victory and enjoying it a little bit, you know... Maybe look back at your own fan base from the mid two thousands and uh, let me know if you actually think that they were doing anything different when there was a far superior team beating a far in- inferior team by you know a smaller margin of victory than they should. It's a rivalry game. Shit gets crazy and weird stuff happens, and games are often closer than they really should be if they if there weren't all these emotions between the two schools. So I don't ever remember the jackass Tuberville ever holding back. You know, with his stupid dumb bullshit. So, those of you who are a little upset that we're enjoying a win over a six-win Auburn team with the backup quarterback uh, at Jordan Hare, you know, I hope you never celebrated very much after any of those victories, or else a little hypocritical there, in my opinion. So, again, just talking about the loud minority there, but uh, it was pretty clear on social media and some people who were calling me privately who, uh, you know, who didn't really know their shit and who did. So,. Um, on the bright side, to cap off the Iron Bowl, you know, good game to both teams. But you know, I can confirm that Shreveport is really beautiful in late December. So have fun, Auburn. Michigan beat Ohio State forty-two to twenty-seven. First time in eons that the Wolverines pulled it off. This game, Michigan just bullied the hell out of them. It wasn't. It wasn't particularly close. Um. Michigan jumped out to a 7-0 lead in the first quarter and Ohio State was never able to take it take the lead back from them. Uh, you know, they're in the second half. Ohio State still had some chances to to make it a one-score game and try to make it competitive in the fourth quarter, but um, you know, all all the credit in the world, Michigan just just really was too strong and too physical and it looked a lot like the Oregon game when they just dominated Ohio state up and down the field in September. Um, so Michigan now shockingly has a path to the playoff. I mean, they did before this game, but I didn't think they were going to win. So, um, you know, first time Jim Harbaugh ever beats Ohio state. He's another one like Brian Kelly that I don't care for, like to talk crap about that program, but I got to give credit where credit's due. Um, you know, Michigan, they, they basically told Harbaugh, if you want to stay, we're cutting your salary in half and, you know, making making this a lot more favorable for us since you haven't exactly come through with what we expected you to do. He, you know, put his tail between his legs. He said okay, got back to work, and it paid off immediately. <laughs> Michigan's 11-1 and going to the Big Ten Championship, beating Ohio State for the first time in his coaching tenure. So, I mean, you know, they're not done yet. I mean, although people are going to be happy no matter what happens the rest of the season because they finally got the Ohio State boogeyman off their back after so long. Um, You know, they definitely should beat Iowa and they could even, you know, win a playoff game if they get matched up with uh, Notre Dame, you know, for example. I'm going to get more into the uh, possible playoff scenarios and everything that's Really at stake uh, during these conference championship games on the next episode when I talk to Garrett. Uh, So more on that soon. But yeah, congrats to Michigan. It's been a long time coming. And uh, I hope they don't party too hard this week to then flop against Iowa in the Big Ten championship game. But I wouldn't be surprised either way. Uh, Next, Bedlam. Oklahoma State beat Oklahoma thirty-seven to thirty-three. This sends the Cowboys, or they had already locked in the Big Twelve championship game, but this eliminates Oklahoma uh, from contention since Baylor got a win on Saturday. So now Oklahoma State, like Michigan, uh, they could, you know, if they if they beat Baylor, they're going to get in the playoff. So uh, it was a, a crazy bedlam game per usual. Uh, Oklahoma was kind of staging a comeback there at the very end, but Oklahoma State was able to hold on. That rivalry is a lot like Michigan-Ohio State. Not quite to the extent, but still pretty bad and one-sided for how good both of those teams usually are uh, year in, year out. So good job for the Cowboys. That was a crazy scene. And, of course, less than 10 hours later, Lincoln Riley was already uh, out, out to his new gig. So it'll be different faces next year in Bedlam whenever Oklahoma finds their next guy. The Egg Bowl on Thursday night, a little anticlimactic. Uh, Ole Miss won that one 31-21. Um, Mississippi State, you know, kind of, they really made it closer than it was with a couple garbage time scores at the end because Ole Miss had a pretty solid big lead uh, the whole second half. But that game was raining, you know. It was still pretty fun, but not, not any of the super craziness that we've seen in Egg Bowl's past on Thanksgiving night there. Iowa beat Nebraska 28-21. to I don't know what Nebraska did to piss off whoever runs the universe, but this was just an absolutely gutting, brutal loss. They led this game 21-6 to and lost 21-28. to <laughs> I mean... They're the best 3-9 and team of all time. I believe they lost all of their Big Ten games by a combined 32 points. Uh, Just hard hard to believe that that, that that could happen just week after week after week, and they could never steal one. And they played, you know, Iowa. Going to the Big Ten Championship, they only lost by seven. They lost to Michigan by a score. They were right there with Ohio State in late in the fourth quarter and could have won that game if it weren't for some super conservative play calling. So that's a tough one. It's a tough one for Nebraska, but they've been used to it all year. So they finished their campaign three and nine. So we'll see what's in store for Scott Frost as we go forward. Michigan, or sorry, Minnesota beat Wisconsin 23-13. to 13. This eliminated Wisconsin. Uh, they were in the Big, big Ten West uh, driver's seat, and all they had to do was beat Minnesota, who they were favored over. They did not do so, so that's why Iowa is beating, uh, or playing Michigan, sorry. Uh, really just disappointing season from Wisconsin all in all. Uh, I mean they, they finished stronger than they started, but still they you know they had some big Ten championship aspirations and it, it didn't go how they wanted it to. There's really no excuse that they should have lost that division, but it'll be Iowa playing uh, to represent the Big Ten West next week in Indianapolis. Washington State drug Washington 40 to 13. This was the Apple Cup on Friday night. This was Washington's first win in a decade. So good for them. They ended up having a really fantastic season uh, after their first coach got fired and the new guy came in. I think he's going to be made their permanent coach uh, here probably pretty shortly as he deserves to be as Washington did Washington State did so so, so well, you know in October and, and November once they kind of got themselves in order. Uh, they would have, with this win, they could have made the Pac-12 championship game had Oregon State beat Oregon, but the Ducks prevailed in the Civil War by nine points, so they'll be representing the Pac-12 North in the championship game against Utah from the South. Lastly, LSU beat Texas A&M 27-24. This was Kocho's last game with the Tigers. Looking back on it, this feels like a really obvious uh obvious bet i should have made you know with all the emotion behind Coach O and Ole, or uh texas a&m kind of dragging their feet along this month of november and everything but yeah that's it for Coach O. lsu qualified with the bowl game uh with this win but he will not be coaching in that he's just going to ride off into the sunset with the final win at death valley can't blame him so that'll do it for the Rivalry Week recap and Coaching Carousel Madness that we've uh, been discussing at the beginning of the episode and throughout. But I'll be back in the next day or two with an interview with Garrett Bulldog, uh, talking about the SEC Championship game. I'll be previewing all of the other games quickly and talking about some college football playoff scenarios. And who knows, in 24 or 48 hours, there's probably going to be five more marquee programs that have had firings and hirings. So we'll touch on that as the news comes. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you soon.